Last time we spoke about the incredible Battle of Midway. Then we dwelt deep into Operation AL, the Aleutian Islands campaign. Being part of Operation MI, it was bound to the absolute chaos that occurred at Midway, and as a result, the Japanese were only able to invade and occupy Atu and Kiska in the end. While the Aleutian territories were pretty much insignificant, the Japanese invasion still raised alarm bells for the Americans, who believed a full-blown invasion of Alaska was on its way. The Americans would fortify Alaska, and unfortunately, this led them to relocate and intern over 881 of the Aboriginal Aleut people. The Japanese also interned some 42 Aleuts, making this group of people victims of both the Allies and the Axis powers. Now today, we are venturing down under to talk about one of the most bizarre and disastrous attacks performed against Australia. This episode is a disastrous attack on Sydney Harbour. Welcome to the Pacific War Podcast, week by week, and I'm your dutiful host, Craig Watson. But before we can begin, I just want to remind you, this podcast is only made possible through the efforts of kings and generals over at YouTube. Perhaps you want to learn a bit more about World War II? Kings and Generals has an assortment of episodes on World War II and much, much more, so go give them a look over at YouTube. So please, subscribe to Kings and Generals over at YouTube and continue to help us produce this content by checking out www.patreon.com slash kingsandgenerals. And hey, if you're still hungry after all that for some more history content, why don't you go over to my personal channel, the Pacific War Channel, where you can find videos going as far back as the Opium Wars of the 1800s until the end of the Pacific War in 1945. Give it a look, it'll mean a lot to me. Let me start off by stating this is going to be one of the funniest episodes I have ever written. If you saw the YouTube version, which I actually also happen to be the guy who wrote that one, it was pretty funny. But this one's going to really knock you off your feet. It's simply incredible how silly this event really was. So please, enjoy. It's not as well known, but during the surprise attack on Pearl Harbor, the IGN had sent five submarines, the I-16, 18, 20, 22, and 24, each carrying a Ko-Hyoteki class or Type A midget submarine within them. The submarines came 10 nautical miles from the mouth of Pearl Harbor and launched their midget subs at around 1 a.m. local Hawaii time on December the 7th. By 3.42 a.m., a minesweeper named the Condor spotted one of the midget submarine's periscopes just southwest of Pearl Harbor's entrance and alerted a nearby destroyer, the Ward. That midget submarine may have snuck in to Pearl Harbor, but the USS Ward managed to shell and sink another midget submarine at 6.37 a.m. Those shots were technically the first official shots of the Pacific War for the Americans. One midget sub managed to get around the north side of Ford Island and fired torpedoes at the seaplane tender Curtis. She missed Curtis, and another destroyer, the Monaghan, who quickly fired upon her and sunk her by 8.43 a.m. A third midget sub, the Ha-19, went around twice, once outside the harbor entrance and then again on the east side of Oahu, where it would be captured by December the 8th. Ensign Kazuo Sakamaki was aboard and had to swim ashore where he was caught by the Hawaiian National Guard, Corporal David Akwe, and thus Kazuo became the first Japanese POW of the Pacific War. A fourth midget sub had been hit by some depth charges and was abandoned by its crew before they could fire their torpedoes. That midget sub would be found much later on in 1960. Later on, the Hawaii Undersea Research Submersibles found the wreck of the 5th Midget Submarine in 2002. It was lying in three parts, some 5 miles off the entrance to Pearl Harbor. Today, you can see two of these Midget Submarines. One, the Ha-19, is in an exhibit in Fredericksburg, Texas. The other one found in 1960 is at Itajima, Japan. One out of the five Midget Submarines is still unaccounted for but it is believed to be lying inside Pearl Harbor, and it had fired torpedoes, one at the USS Oklahoma and one at the USS Virginia. Midget submarines are a much lesser known weapon of World War II, 
They typically were under 150 tons, crewed by very few submariners, and normally worked with motherships from which they were launched and recovered. Italy famously used three of their Solero, famously known as human torpedoes, during the raid on Alexandria on December the 19th of 1941. They placed limpet mines under the hulls of warships, and their attack killed eight crew, disabling two battleships, damaging one destroyer and one tanker. The HMS Valiant was disabled for nine months, HMS Queen Elizabeth for six months, and the HMS Jervis and Sagona both lost their stern sections. Germany developed its midget submarines late into World War II in an attempt to attack the Allied invasion of Europe, and later disrupt supply lines with very limited success. Britain specifically designed its X-Craft to place timed explosive charges on seabeds underneath their targets. Britain famously used the X-Craft during Operation Source, in which they made attacks on the legendary battleship Tirpitz, the Skarnhorst, and the Lutzau, based in Kafjord, Norway. Tirpitz was very heavily damaged. One mine exploded abreast of her turret, Caesar. The second mine exploded near her port bow. Her fuel oil tank ruptured. The bulkheads in the double bottom buckled. A large indention was made in the bottom of her ship hull. Shell plating was torn, and her turbo generators were flooded. All the repair work would take over seven months to be complete. So it goes without saying, midget submarines could be a deadly weapon that could sneak into ports, plant bombs, and leave without the enemy ever knowing what hit them. A pretty terrifying thing to contemplate as an admiral. Now, unlike the British, Germans, and Italians, the Japanese developed their midget submarines intending to employ them during fleet actions. Much like how the Japanese used its normal submarines, the idea was always offensive and in large ship battles. Honestly, it was one of the major downfalls of the Japanese during the Pacific War, a complete oversight on the potential of submarine warfare against commercial vessels. The initial theory was that these midget submarines would be launched from seaplane carriers to cause chaos amongst the enemy fleet. But then, carrier-supported aerial combat emerged, and this dramatically changed the IGN's thinking. Now, they sought to use the midget submarines to infiltrate and attack enemy warships within harbors. A much better idea. What would emerge was what I mentioned earlier with the Pearl Harbor example the Koheoteki class or Type A midget submarines. The Type A midget submarine was around 80 feet long, divided into three sections, with door openings being about 13 inches wide and 30 inches high. Their only source of power was batteries, of which they had 208. They could also push a speed of about 20 knots, but cruised at around 8. They were armed with two 450mm torpedoes in muzzle-loading tubes, one above, another at the bow. Each sub was crewed by two men, usually a junior officer who combed the boat, while a petty officer manipulated valves and moved the ballast to control the diving. I do not know about most of you listening, but the idea of cramming myself into one of these things sounds like a literal nightmare makes those scenes in Das Boot seem like a cakewalk. Am I aging myself a bit with that one? In 1942, as the IGN was making their preparations for the midway operation, they realized they would require some diversionary attacks to convince the Allies that they were intending to attack to the south, or west, of their recent conquests. Basically, it was the exact same rationale as Operation AL, the Aleutian Islands campaign. A diversion attack to make the enemy think that the entire bulk of your navy was not positioned just outside of Midway. So six submarines, the I-21, 27, 28, 29, B-1 types, and the I-22 and I-24, C-1 types of the IGN-8 submarine squadron were selected to form a eastern attack group, led by Captain Hankyu Sasaki. Sasaki had commanded the 3rd Submarine Division, which launched the five midget submarines against Pearl Harbor. The Japanese had four targets in mind for their diversionary attack, Namoa, Suva, Auckland, and Sydney. On June 8, 1942, the I-21 and I-29 launched their Yokozuka Glen floatplanes, 
And yes, you heard that right. The IGN submarines launched float planes. Because the IGN loved to make their submarines huge. I mean, they were really big. It's impressive. Pretty awesome stuff. These float planes performed aerial reconnaissance of the various Australian harbors seeking to find the most vulnerable targets. The I-21 scouted Numoa in New Caledonia, Suva in Fiji, then Auckland in New Zealand, while the I-29 scouted Sydney. The I-29 ended up running into a Soviet merchant vessel named the Wellen, 30 miles from Newcastle, New South Wales. The I-29 fired upon her, but the Wellen managed to escape with minimal damage. This also resulted in a scramble of anti-submarine ships pouring out of Sydney Harbour to hunt down the I-29. There was a 24-hour sweep of aircraft and anti-submarine ships, such as the HNLMS Tromp, HMS Arunta, and the USS Perkins. After 24 hours, they failed to find the submarine, prompting Rear Admiral Jared Merhead Gould, the naval officer in charge of Sydney Harbour, to conclude the submarine was operating alone and had left the area. Mirhead Gould was an experienced World War I sailor with some knowledge of submarines. During World War I, he earned a Distinguished Service Cross and was recognized as a Chevalier of the Légion d'Honneur and a Chevalier of the Honneur of the Redeemer. In the 1930s, he became a member of the naval intelligence assigned to the British Embassy in Berlin and would go on to inform Churchill of the German military buildup particularly in relation to its violation of the Treaty of Versailles and the Anglo-German Naval Agreement. When World War II kicked off, the Australian Navy thought he suffered from heart problems and was deemed unfit for service at sea. Then, on October the 14th of 1939, the HMS Royal Oak was attacked by the German U-boat U-47 while anchored in the Scapa Flow. This led to the Admiralty Board of Inquiry trying to figure out how a submarine could have penetrated the harbor's defenses and what could be done to prevent the incident in the future. Merhard Gould was at that point a commander and one of the three senior officer members on that board. By February of 1940, Gould was made the commander of Sydney Harbor. Now, while the I-21 and the I-29 were scouting, in the meantime, on May 11th, the I-22, 24, 27, and the I-28 had been ordered to head to the Japanese naval base at Truk in the Carolyn Islands to pick up some Type A midget submarines. Along the way, the I-28 was torpedoed and sunk on the surface by the U.S. submarine USS Totog on May the 17th. The other submarines made it to the destination and were outfitted with their midget submarines. And I really don't know why, but every time I think about the mini-subs going into the big submarines, I think of the mini-cons and transformers. You know, those ones that popped out like 8-tracks? Yeah, I'm really aging myself here. Anyways, the submarines departed from truck on May the 20th en route for the Solomon Islands area. The I-24 would be forced to return a day after her departure, however, as her midget submarine's battery compartment blew up, killing the midget submarine's navigator and injuring her commander. Not a great start for the Japanese by any measure. Luckily, the midget submarine intended for the poor I-28 that was sunk, well, it replaced it. Now back over to the I-21 and the I-29. The I-29's floatplane made a successful reconnaissance of Sydney on May the 23rd. Warrant Flying Officer Nabuo Fujita and Petty Officer Second Class Shoji Akuda were flying the Glen audaciously in broad daylight. If their Glen was detected, they were pretty much as good as dead because they would not be able to return to the I-29 if aerial forces were engaging them. Now, there is little to no official records on this flight but there were some eyewitnesses. Signalman Arthur Arby Monroe was on duty at Port War Signal Station on South Head as Fujita took the Glen down the harbor. There was also an army gunner named Don Cabdell Smith manning a mobile radar station parked at Iron Cove just five kilometers southwest of the harbor bridge. Darby was the first to see Fujita's Glen as it approached the entrance of Sydney Harbor, flying at around 500 feet. He reported the sighting to the Naval HQ at Garden Island and tried to warn the RAF over at Richmond, a base for railway fighters, but he was told, It's no use telling us. 
By the time we sent someone, he'd be gone. Don Caldwell Smith picked up the Glen and tracked its movements as it moved down the harbor. Don alerted the nearby anti-aircraft gun, but then suddenly got a call from the Combined Defense HQ near Circular Quay. The next thing, headquarters came back and they said, Stop! We've been in touch with the Air Force, and they have no aircraft in the air at the moment. So you better get that machine of yours tested by an artificer, radar technician tomorrow. So clearly, the HQ assumed it had been an allied aircraft, or that the radar was simply messed up. Thus, Fujita's flight went undisturbed. Fujita reported the presence of two battleships, or large cruisers, five large warships, several smaller warships, and numerous merchant shipping. The Allied Fleet Radio Unit of Melbourne Signals Intelligence Network, known as Frumel, picked up his message back to the home submarines. Meanwhile, the I-21's Glen made a reconnaissance on May 24th of Auckland Harbor, but did not find any real targets. The report of the I-29 came back to the Japanese 6th Fleet HQ at Kwajalein and Vice Admiral Turahisia Komatsu thought the battleship HMS Warspite might be in Sydney Harbor, a very highly valued target. It was enough to appetize Komatsu, who gave the orders that Sydney would be the target, sending the mothership submarines on their way. Now, the message was intercepted, like I said, and it had been decrypted somewhat. How much? We don't know, really, as the fleet radio unit in Melbourne, known as Frumel, which was a joint Australian-American code-breaking unit of World War II, never released its contents. However, later after the war, the Americans seem to have leaked some of the decryptions, and here is a snippet of those messages. At various times in the past, it has been reported that the principal source from which the Japanese gained intelligence of the movements of Allied forces in the South Pacific appears to be submarines, reconnaissance close inshore. At least one such submarine spent several days reconnaissancing in the vicinity of Sydney around the middle of May and reported details of naval ship movements which in general appeared to exaggerate the actual facts. This particular boat is one which unsuccessfully attacked the SS Wellen. Another boat, or possibly the same one, spent the period of May 19th to the 23rd in the vicinity of Suva, Fiji, and reported a number of ship movements. Arthur McCollum, who worked for the Far East desk of the Office of Naval Intelligence in Washington, wrote the report, and he went on to write how amusing the I-29's report was because it clearly exaggerated the size and number of ships in Sydney Harbor. So, it goes without saying, the Australians would have had this information at the time. We also know the message was received on May the 25th, and took until May the 30th to decrypt, and was presented to naval intelligence by May the 31st, the day of the attack on Sydney Harbor. Clearly, it indicated the Japanese were planning to hit Sydney Harbor. The report was given to Vice Admiral Leary, commander of Allied Naval Forces in the Southwest Pacific area, based in Melbourne. Leary passed the reports on to Washington, and at his discretion, to anyone he felt might need to know. It appears Leary did not find the report significant, as he did not pass it to anyone outside Washington, not even to Douglas MacArthur, who later would be very livid about this. Alongside the decryption report, the sightings of the Glen Plain at Sydney were reported, and Mirhard Gould did not seem to react at all to the reports. Just before the dawn of May the 29th, the I-21's Glen Plain, piloted by Ito Tsuzumu, performed a final reconnaissance over Sydney Harbor with the mission of mapping out the location of major vessel targets and anti-submarine nets. It took Ito about 25 minutes to get to Sydney Harbor at around 4 a.m. in the morning. He dropped to about 1,000 feet, flying around the harbor and as reported by Phil Dolhenty, a 18-year-old serving 
within the harbor that day. This particular night, I was on guard duty, and I caught the 4-6 till six morning period, the graveyard shift, which was pretty nasty. I was there half asleep and playing around with a couple of possums in a tree. Then suddenly, I heard this big truck coming up the hill from down in the artillery battery. I thought, he's getting an early start. As the noise got closer and closer, I saw it was an airplane going by a seaplane. I just thought, it's off the Chicago or one of the American warships. You didn't worry about it. Nobody worried about it. Everybody thought it was just an American plane. Multiple observers spotted the Glen, and many assumed, just like Phil, that it was an American Curtis Seagull. Eventually, at 5.07 a.m., the Allies realized they had no aircraft airborne at that time, and the RAF base in Richmond launched railway fighters to locate this unknown flying object. They failed to locate the Glen, and alongside this, Frumel had intercepted more radio chatter between the IGN submarines between May the 26th and May 29th, indicating that a submarine or multiple submarines were approaching Sydney Harbor. And still, no significant alarms or defense measures were raised. It's honestly incredible. It should also be noted, on May the 29th, Mirhead Gould's birthday, he turned 53. There is no record of how he marked the day, but what we do know is how he planned his Sunday evening on May the 31st. He invited Captain Howard Bode, commander of the USS Chicago, and a group of Chicago senior officers to dinner at Tresco. This was most likely an all-male officer affair, officers in black tie, full naval uniform, and the dinner would have been a celebratory event, as the Chicago had just returned from the Battle of Coral Sea. If things ran accordingly to plan, the evening would begin at 7pm with pre-dinner drinks, followed by dinner and wine, and then after 8pm, some more dinner drinks. We know Gould was very fond of offering guests a glass of Three of Pink Gin, let me explain to you what a Three of Pink Gin is. That is a few drops of Augustra bitters in the bottom of the glass, then stirred in neat gin at the discretion of the pourer. No ice, no lemon, no tonic. Little known fact, most of my life I worked as a bartender. And just to point out the obvious, if you didn't realize, this guy was just pouring glasses of pure gin, and a lot of it. People were going to get hammered. So to set up this chessboard in summary, the Japanese basically gave away the entire operation over five times, and the Allied forces dropped the ball every single time. On top of all of that, the day of the attack, which was May the 31st, members of the High Command were getting hammered. Alright, so I want to talk about the Sydney Harbour defences now. If you do not have a map handy or are not familiar with Sydney, this might get a little bit complicated. My recommendation is, ironically, to watch the YouTube episode at Kings and Generals, which again, yours truly wrote. And my god, the animator for this episode, he did an incredible job mapping out the harbor. It's great, and it helps a lot. So, to start off, outside the entrance to Sydney Harbour, there was six indicator loops laying across the ocean bed in deep water in a huge arc from the cliffs of Dover Heights to the south, all the way to the beach suburb of D.Y. in the north. These loops registered the passage over them of any metal ship. On the night of May the 31st of 1942, an entire battleship could have crossed the outer ring of one of these loops without raising a single alarm. This is because two of these loops were not even functioning properly. And as a result of that, which was known at the time, all six loops would be left unmanned on May the 31st. The next line of defense was a pair of similar indicator loops inside the harbor. Inner loop number 11 stretched across the entrance of the harbor from North Head to South Head. Beyond this was inner loop number 12, stretching inside South Head at Lady Bay, across the inner harbour, to Middlehead near Obelisk Bay. 
Watching over all of this was the Port War Signal Station on South Head, which checked every vessel approaching the harbor. The final line of defense was a boom net from the southern shore of Langs Point going all the way to George's Head. The central section of the boom net was complete, but wide gaps remained on its sides. The harbor defense craft included anti-submarines such as HMAS Yandra and Bigera, auxiliary minesweepers HMS Gonabi, and Samuel Bembo, with numerous patrol boats armed with depth charges. Also in the harbor was the heavy cruiser USS Chicago, HMS Canberra, HMS Adelaide, and multiple lesser warships. On the night of May the 31st, the I-27, 22, and 24 of the Eastern Attack Group assembled off Sydney's heads. The feeling amongst the crew was somber, as they were all painfully aware that the five midget submarines that had set off for Pearl Harbor on December the 7th had all not returned. Nine out of ten of those crew members were all presumed dead. The Sydney mission was perilous to be to the point of suicidal. There was very little chance any of those crews and those midget subs would ever be seen again. Now, the naming and numbering of the midget submarines gives me a major headache. The most conventional naming and numbering of midget submarines is to take the name of the mother submarine, example the I-22, and call the midget M-22. So we would end up with I-22, 24, 27, and 28, with M-22, 24, 27, and 28 respectfully. But the I-28 was sunk, and the M-24 was damaged. So the I-24 held M-28, and the rest is as you would expect it. But no. No, the Japanese used a completely different numbering system, giving each midget a unique designator beginning with HA, and the actual numbering was M-27 equals HA-14, M-22 equals HA-21, to make matters much, much worse. Reports from Mirhard Gould refers to the HA-14 as M-14 and the HA-21 and M-21 as such. Then, after all of that, he adds into his account a midget A and a midget B, which was just some made-up stuff. You have no idea the back and forth I went through, and I'm using a book called a Very Rude Awakening, The Night the Japanese Midget Subs Came to Sydney Harbor by Peter Gross. And in order to not confuse the reader, he decided to use the names of the commanders instead, which is honestly a super smart idea. Seriously, between this book and some research articles and another book I read, and even if you go on, like, let's say the Wikipedia page, the Naming and numbering of these midget subs, it's, it's an absolute nightmare, and everyone has a different account for it. Going by just the name of the commanders is the best way, so that's what I'm going to be doing. So, the M27, or the HA-14, as they're both known, is Chumans, the M22, or HA-21, or M21, is Matsuo, and the M28, or HA-24, is Bans. Keoe Matsuo was a senior lieutenant amongst the bunch, and the one written most about. Born on the 21st of July of 1917, Matsuo could trace his Bushido ancestry as far back as the 14th century. He was a black belt in judo and unusually tall for a midget submariner. He was fair-skinned and softly spoken, quite a gentle-handed guy. He was one of the principal strategists of the midget submarine program. In the initial days of midget submarines, when the IGN argued that they should be employed in ship battles, he was one of the very few people advocating for using them for infiltration and the sinking of warships at anchor. The five mother submarines took up station on a huge arc within a 25 nautical mile radius from the harbor entrance to Sydney. The I-27 carrying Chuman's midget waited northeast of the rim. The I-22 carrying Matsuo stood off to the east and the I-24 carrying Ban was to the southeast. At 5.20, Matsuo launched. Chumin launched next at 5.28, and Ban was the last at 5.40. Chumin arrived first and planned to sneak behind a late ferry coming in from Manly. The ferry crossed interloop number 12 at 7.59, 
and just behind her, so did Chumen. But instead of following the ferry through the eastern gate, Chumen headed across the harbor, past the Sow and Pig's Reef, to the western end of the boom net, and its easier entrance. He slipped gracefully through the gap into the inner harbor and target zone. Really impressive. Chumen had cleared the ring of six outer indicator loops, even though they were not in service, but he didn't know that. He crossed the inner loops without leaving a trace, and he evaded the specialist anti-submarine patrol of the HMS Yandri, which was guarding the harbor entrance alongside three other boats, the Lariana, Alura, and Yarrawanga. Then he passed the net boom, all while being undiscovered. But then disaster struck. Truman had to find a way into the center of the harbor, and this meant turning his 24-meter-long submarine. And as he tried to do this, he collided with the harbor pilelight. As Jimmy Cargrill, a night watchman who first saw the sub, would state, The first Jap that came in, he must have seen me, and he dived to get through the gate. Like, so I wouldn't see him. The gate was open. It wasn't finished then. He came through the gate at about 80 feet. Inside the gate, he went off his course a little bit, and he hit the pile light. Of course, he was submerged on the bottom then. Well, he went astern, and he got one of the big rings of the net around his propeller. Chuman's sub pulled into reverse when he collided, and then he jammed his propellers right into the boom net. Chuman's sub was literally stuck between the second and third piles of the net directly opposite of the pile light, and now he was really panicking. Continuously revving the engines to reverse would have made things even worse. It is theorized while he was reversing his sub, he had gone sideways, then vertical with the hull parallel to the net. This made his torpedo tubes protrude out of the water, and all the commotion attracted the attention of Jimmy Cargill on the deck of a nearby floating crane. Jimmy rode over for a closer look at the object. At around 8.15, he was rowing over, and he saw the object. Then he went to row over to the nearby Yaroama to report his discovery. However, Yaroama's skipper, Sub-Lieutenant Harold Ears, wanted nothing to do with Cargill's mystery object. Mirhard Gould would later describe Ayer's actions as, quote, deplorable and inexplicable. Though, after this entire story, you might be led to believe Mirhad Gould was looking for scapegoats. So Jimmy paddled back to the object with Ears, and when they got close enough to touch it, Ears said, It's a submarine, all right. Put me back on board, and we'll see what we have to do. This entire process took a long time, it seems. There was a lot of arguing back and forth to get Ears to come. It's theorized the entire ordeal took an hour and a half. And the entire time the Yorama was frantically trying to signal the lamp at Port War signal station on the south head that there was a problem going on, but no one was responding. Eventually, someone aboard Yorama had a bright idea, that of toggling the FSC radio to send a Morse code signal directly to Garden Island and the message got to the Naval HQ by 9.52 p.m. The message said, Suspicious object in the net. Naval HQ responded to ears with, Close in and investigate. I won't get into the technicality of all of this, but this was all the result of outdated equipment being employed and a lack of direct phone wire connections at Sydney Harbor. Now at this point, Truman's midget sub was not the only one in the harbor. Ben reached the harbor entrance sometime around 9.30, two hours late. At 9.48, four minutes before Yaroma's first message to Garden Island, the inner loop 12 recorded an isolated sharp blip, but nobody took notice of this. At 10.10 p.m., Ears responded to the request from Garden Island to close in and investigate the object. He relayed a message, stating, The mystery object was metal, with a serrated edge on top, and that it was moving with a swell. It was obviously a damn submarine. 
Yet the guy did not say this outright in his message. So, Garden Island responded by asking him to give a fuller description. And I can't imagine why. Ears then responded by signaling with his Aldous lamp to his fellow channel patrol boat, the HMAS Lolita, to come from her station to the other end of the boom net. Ears then ordered her skipper, one Warrant Officer Herbert Tubby Anderson, to investigate the object. The Lolita came over sometime around 10.20 p.m., and Anderson's handwritten report of this states, Stood off about 20 feet with stern towards object and machine gun covering same. Inspected object by flashing Aldous lamp on it, which proved to be a submarine. The bow was pointed, approximately southeast. She was inside the net, her bow being approximately two feet above water, periscope showing about a foot, and stern entirely submerged. She appeared to be struggling to extricate herself. I realized at once the necessity for immediate action and gave the order to stand by depth charges. Lolita's signalman flashed a message by light to the Port War signal station, stating, Have sighted enemy midget submarine and proceed to attack. The Lolita dropped its first depth charge and roared full throttle to get away from the blast, which there was none. Depth charges, you see, they explode once they reach a preset depth, and the water was too shallow, so the depth charges just sat on the floor. The Lolita crew sat there like complete morons, waiting, and eventually they tried again, and the same thing occurred yet again. Anderson prepared for a third attack, but as the Lolita approached the sub, a giant explosion occurred, and a shockwave lifted Lolita right out of the water. It turns out Schumann realized his plight, and he fired off a scuttling charge, killing himself and Petty Officer Takeshi Omori. They were the first men to die in what has become known as the Battle of Sydney Harbour at around 10.37pm. The explosion's blast reverberated around the harbour, making many people rush to see what the hell was going on. According to written testimony by Mirhad Gould, the dinner party at Tresco left at 10.20pm, and upon discovering the situation, Gould issued an order to all ships in the harbour to take anti-submarine precautions. This order would have been carried out by Garden Island's visual signal and repeated from the Port War Signal Station by the same means. This meant a large number of ships in the harbour would not be informed if they had not seen the signals. Apparently, Gould also ordered all commercial harbour traffic to continue as normal. By 9.48, Matsuo's sub entered the harbour almost four hours late. The auxiliary patrol boat USS Lorania saw Matsuo's sub enter and chased behind her. Only problem was, she had no depth charges. Thus, the Loriana was frantically making signals at other boats while chasing after Matsuo. Matsuo, completely unaware, continued to go down the eastern channel into the main shipping area of the harbor, but he was seen by the USS Yandra, which unlike Loriana, did have depth charges. Yandra's commander, Lieutenant James Taplin, decided the best course of action was to try and ram the sub because there was too many ships nearby for depth charges to be set off. He managed to actually hit the submarine, but it seems all he did was make the midget sub list to starboard, and now Matsuo knew something was going on, and he evaded his tormentor by turning back towards the entrance to the harbor. The Yandra set off in pursuit, and when it made visual contact with Matsuo, she began to make a six-pattern depth charge attack, and Matsuo frantically submerged. Taplin lost contact with the submarine afterwards and assumed he had scored a fatal hit, but he had in fact not. Matsuo simply submerged and rested on the ocean floor, cutting off all noise. Now Ban's sub cautiously approached Garden Island, and by 10.52pm he crept within range of the USS Chicago, which was tied up to the buoy off Garden Island. According to the Chicago's action report, the first sighting of Ban's submarine was around 300 to 500 meters off Chicago's starboard side. 
Now, by this point, Gould's orders and alerts were received, so the Chicago's crew were on the lookout. They also probably heard Truman's scuttling charge explosion. One of Chicago's crew recalled, The Sky Control personnel began searching to see if they could pick up anything in the harbor. Some little time later, they saw what they believed to be a submarine. A gun and a searchlight were trained there, and the arcs were struck. The searchlight was turned on, of course, so that by opening the shutters, they could illuminate the object. At this point, the searchlight was alight, but closed, with its beam trapped behind the shutters. The crew asked for permission to open the shutters and to open fire. But as seconds went by, no orders came. After the agony of waiting, with Band's sub moving into position to fire, the crew had had enough and opened the shutters over the sub. The officer on deck, Ensign Bruce Simmons, was the first one to act. He emptied his .45 pistol at Band's coning tower while raising an alarm. All over the ship, a gong sounded, and soon the anti-aircraft guns began firing at Band's conning tower. Eyewitness accounts recall, Red Tracer was pouring into the harbor and shots falling around the submarine. This was a polite way of saying the anti-aircraft gunners were missing everything they were shooting at. The USS Chicago had two 5-inch guns at the stern of the ship, but the gunners could not depress them enough to hit Bant's sub. This, however, did not stop them from trying, and soon shells ricocheted across the harbor, miraculously not causing damage in North Sydney, though many chunks were taken off the stone walls of Fort Denison. While Bant's sub did not receive any damage at all, it did cause Bant to panic as he was trying to fire a torpedo. Band submerged and resurfaced 300 meters off Chicago's starboard bow. The Corvette HMAS Geelong saw Ban and began to open fire, so Ban had to submerge again. Now, during all of this chaos, the captain of the USS Chicago, Boyd, had not returned to the ship yet, despite the ship literally being anchored just a few hundred meters from the Tresco dinner party. So, 32 minutes from which Gould claims the party left Tresco, Bode was still not on the Chicago. Lieutenant Commander Mecklenburg, one of the guys firing the anti-aircraft guns, by the way, well, he took command of the ship, and he ordered, Fires were lighted under the seven cold boilers, and the fire room crews used high rates of oil and airflow to raise steam pressure rapidly. The USS Chicago was being prepared for sea, and Mecklenburg signaled his destroyer escort, the USS Perkins, to start screening. By 11.15pm, that is just what they did. At 11.15pm, Gould responded to all the chaos in the harbor by ordering all ships to be darkened. However, floodlights remained burning at Garden Island, continuing to silhouette the USS Chicago and other large ships in the anchor nearby. You honestly can't make this shit up. Things became relatively calm at this point, no more firing, no more death charging, and smoke easing up. But soon the moonlight scoured over everything. Ban's sub was submerged in the harbor, and as was Matsuo. At 11.30pm, the Australian anti-submarine vessel HMAS Bingetta, which had been tied up near Chicago, reported it was ready to proceed. Alongside the HMAS Geelong and the Wihala, they all patrolled the wharf looking for the submarines. Now as for Gould, he and Bode apparently assumed the entire time that the submarine attacks were just a bunch of weekend warrior-sailor types misidentifying. By 11, at night, the signals and telephones were buzzing. So much incoherent communications went out. Every damn boat in the harbor was trying to signal and receive orders. Now, Gould's report states the dinner party left at 10.20pm, but it's most certainly a poor lie to cover his tracks. 
It's far more likely Gould made his orders from Tresco by phone while allowing the party to continue on. Even the order given at 11.15pm to darken all the ships was most likely done from Tresco by phone. While it was all fun and games, and perhaps the party had even heard Truman's scuttling explosion, well, they just simply ignored it. By 11pm at night, when the USS Chicago was starting a firefight, well, that was what really caused the party to finally end. Perhaps at 11.20pm, Gould and Bode decided to find out what the hell was going on. Now, as one book on the subject explained to me, the USS Chicago's officers did not dislike their captain per se, they actually loathed him, to be more accurate. Captain Bode and his executive officer, Commander John Roper, returned to the Chicago from Tresco around 11.30pm. Bode was in a towering rage as Jimmy Meckelberg tried to brief him on all the events that had unfolded. Apparently, Bode would not listen and kept shouting, There are no periscopes, no submarines, you are all insubordinate, jittery fools. Then he ordered them to take the ship off general quarters and its high state of alert. All preparations were to be seized at once. Perkins likewise must come off patrol and return to her mooring. Bode then ordered a message to be sent to Mira Gould by flashing signal, stating, I apologize for the ship opening fire in your harbor. It was done without my permission by some junior officers who mistakenly believed there were enemy midget submarines in the harbor. Then Bode retreated to his cabin with an order that all officers were to assemble before him on the bridge. According to George Chipley, Bode rose to a new dramatic height. He accused all the officers of being drunk, and our ships were dry. And in the two and a half years, I never saw alcohol consumed on the Chicago. Then he said we were a bunch of incompetents. That there were no submarines. That we had been firing at shadows. Dire judgment was to fall upon us in the morning. At around 11.30pm, Mirhard Gould and his chief of staff officer set down to the harbor in the direction of the boom net. Gould was convinced there were no submarines and that all the harbor had messed up. According to Gould's own report, he boarded the Lolita at midnight. Members of the crew described Gould's behavior as jocular, sarcastic, belligerent, frivolous, skeptical, and quite incoherent. A crew member named Jim Nelson described the Admiral as... Mirad Gould was very sarcastic about our story. He asked us how we knew we had actually sighted a sub. Tubby told him that Jimmy Crow, another member of Lolita, had been a First World War Submariner. Mirad Gould called Crow over and asked him, Was it a sub? Crow verified it. Mirad Gould asked if we had seen the captain of the sub, did he have a black beard? Gould grilled the crew of Lolita for half an hour, and after all of it, he was still unconvinced. Before he was about to leave, he turned to the crew and said, If you see another sub, see if the captain has a black beard. I'd like to meet him. So, back at Ban Submarine, he had submerged around 11pm, and it is guessed he spent over an hour and a half idling under the water. Ban surfaced again and positioned himself at a firing point further down the harbor facing the USS Chicago's stern. It is theorized, though not known for sure, that Ban took up this position off Bradley's head around midnight. At 12.25, the lights at Garden Island were doused and the Chicago silhouette was no longer visible. Thus, the target was harder to see. But, Ban fired around 12.30. It took the torpedo 30 seconds, going 44 knots, covering 500 meters, and as 30 seconds passed, Ban heard no explosion. So, he fired a second torpedo. 
on the USS Perkins, now secured to the number four buoy, a lookout saw the first torpedo's wake coming from the direction of Bradley's head. The torpedo passed between Perkins and Chicago, about 25 meters off Perkins' starboard bow. It ran another 5 meters below the surface and continued towards Garden Island, passing under the Dutch submarine K-9. Then the harbor ferry HMAS Kudabel and slammed right into Garden Island's seawall immediately below the Kudabel. Bode was still screaming at his crew when they heard and saw the explosion. The effect was devastating. The old ferry was lifted bodily from the water and brutally smashed. A large ball of orange flame billowed from the water. At the sound of it, Captain Bode hesitated and gave the order to Meckleberg. Commander Meckleberg, I want you to take my gig and go over to Garden Island. Present my compliments to Rear Admiral Merhead Gould and say there's been an explosion reported and I request the nature of the explosion. On board the Lolita, near the boom net, Gould was about to climb his barge when he heard the explosion. He shouted, What the hell was that? Anderson beside him replied, If you proceed up the harbor, sir, you might find your Japanese captain with a black beard. The second torpedo, Banshot, had a depth-setting mechanism fail on it. So in turn, it failed to arm. It came ashore next to Gun Wharf on Garden Island, spilling brownish-yellow explosive innards everywhere. Ban's first torpedo led to the death of 21 sailors aboard the Catabool, 19 Australian and 2 British. Half an hour after being hit, Catabool's bow slid under the water, leaving only her wreckage strewn upper deck slightly exposed. In the wake of the blast, the entire harbor fell into wild shooting chaos in all directions. Ben frantically tried to creep towards the harbor exit. Gould now rushed from the boom net back to his HQ on Garden Island, where he was met by Meckleberg and informed of what had happened. He told him to get the USS Chicago the hell out of the harbor. At 1.10 a.m., Gould sent out a general message. Enemy submarine is present in the harbor, and Catabool has been torpedoed. At 1.58 a.m., Interloop 12 recorded a third blip. This was Ben leaving the harbor. By 2.14, Chicago was proceeding to sea, as was many other large vessels. Despite everything, Captain Bode was still shouting at his crew, You wouldn't know what a submarine looks like. Jimmy Meckleberg replied, They look like that, Captain. Meckleberg then proceeded to point at a midget submarine passing down Chicago. The damn midget submarine was in clear view and none of Chicago's guns could depress low enough to hit it. You can't make any of this shit up, folks. It is even theorized the sub collided with the Chicago but that no one felt the impact. This was Matsuo's sub. Captain Bode ordered a signal to Garden Island, stating, Submarine entering the harbor. By 3.35 a.m., the harbor was swarming with patrol boats. Five minutes later, the mother submarines would show up to the rendezvous points. By now, the principal target, the USS Chicago, was out to sea, leaving other targets available, such as the cruiser, HMAS Canberra tied up to the Benelong Point. There was also the armed merchant cruisers HMAS Westralia moored in Athol Bay and the armed cruiser HMAS Cannibal moored at Burt's Bowie. Matsuo stayed quiet for another hour, but at 4.40 a.m. the HMAS Canberra sighted what she thought to be a torpedo track coming from the direction of Bradley's head. By 4.50 a.m., the minesweeper HMAS Domba signaled to Bengera that they had seen a submarine at Robertson's Point. At some point during the night, Matsuo tried to fire both torpedoes, but both failed to leave their tubes. The sub's bow cage had been crushed inwards from both sides as a result of collisions, depth charges, or both. Probably when it ran right into the Chicago.
This prevented the bow caps from dropping clear, thus what Canberra might have seen could have been the air bubbles released by the two firing attempts, but they certainly were not tracks. It is theorized, after failing to fire, Matsuo tried to find somewhere quiet to surface to see if he could fix the mechanisms, and one of the darker and quieter places would have been Taylor's Bay. The sea mist was cruising her way between the western boom gate and Bradley's head, and at 4.30am she received a signal from the minesweeper HMAS Gon Nambi saying that they saw an object in Taylor's Bay and asked sea mist to investigate. At 5 a.m., the sea mist entered Taylor's Bay, and a skipper saw a black object in the water halfway between the patrol boat and the shore. The sea mist pulled behind the submarine and began to drop depth charges as Matsuo frantically submerged. It seems one of the depth charges hit Matsuo square on, breaking his rear section of the sub. The midget submarine rose to the surface briefly before falling back down to the sea floor. Matsuo shot himself and his body would be found in the Koning Tower. His co-pilot, Suzuki, was shot in the back of the head by Matsuo, most likely. The death toll of the Battle of Sydney Harbor was to be 25 people. The five Japanese mother submarines waited off port hacking until June the 3rd before abandoning the hope of recovering any of the midget submarines. Sydney ordered eight aircraft to search the area, with six standing by as a striking force to attack whatever they might find. Various warships joined the hunt, but no one found any of the mother submarines. What happened to Ban's midget submarine, you might be asking? We would find out in 2006, when some happy-go-lucky explorers found it in just under 50 meters of water, three kilometers off Newport Reef on the northern Sydney beaches. The wreck was mostly intact, and the scuttling charges had not been fired. The wreck had several bullet holes in it, most likely from Chicago's quadruple machine gun mount. One theory is that Ban took the sub out of the harbor and exhausted its batteries before reaching the rendezvous point. Another theory is that Ban decided not to go to the rendezvous point because he wanted to avoid endangering the mother submarines. The Battle of Sydney Harbor was a colossal failure on both the Japanese and Allied parts. Everything that could go wrong really did go wrong. The performance of Mirhad Gould and Captain Bode was certainly questionable. Gould lied his head off in his reports, as I have already indicated, or perhaps he was still drunk when he wrote them. Interestingly, on June the 3rd, Mirad Gould alongside 200 Navy personnel attended a burial ceremony for the 21 dead sailors of the Catabool. The Australians had recovered the bodies of the four Japanese crew of the two midget submarines sunk in Sydney Harbour, and in the hopes of improving the conditions of Australian POWs in the Japanese internment camps, the Australians cremated the four Japanese bodies at Eastern Suburbs Crematorium. They draped the Japanese flag over their coffins and rendered them full naval honors. Mirhead Gould was criticized heavily for this, but defended his actions based on respecting the courage of the Force Mariners. Japanese authorities noted the funeral service, but this did not lead to any significant improvement of conditions for Australian POWs. In August of 1942, there was an exchange of Japanese and Allied diplomatic personnel stranded in each nation. Tatsuo Kewe, the Japanese ambassador to Australia, was given the ashes of the four Japanese Mariners to bring back home. I would like to take this time to remind you all that this podcast is only made possible through the efforts of Kings and Generals over at YouTube. So please, go subscribe to Kings and Generals over at YouTube and continue to help us produce this content by checking out www.patreon.com slash kingsandgenerals. And hey... If you're still hungry after all that for some history content with, you know, some more humor, why don't you go check out my personal channel, the Pacific War Channel, over at YouTube. Over there, I have a hilarious video going through all the movies that depict the attack on Pearl Harbor. It's quite funny. Give it a look. It'll mean a lot to me. What an absolutely bonkers story, eh? Both the Japanese and the Sydney defenders had made every possible mistake one can make to create one of the most bizarre and chaotic battles fought during World War II. 
Although it is indeed a funnier episode, it should always be remembered that 25 men did lose their lives during all of this, and that is a tragedy.